Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Today on my Cerebral Women podcast, I'm excited to feature Pauline Willis, the CEO and director of the American Federation of Arts. It wasn't until I met her that I became aware of the organization and the important role it serves in the art world. Before we begin, I want to make a few comments. The AFA is a very important nonprofit that creates art exhibition for presentation in museums around the world. It publishes exhibition catalogs and develops education programs. The AFA has made and curated more than 3,000 exhibitions, reaching many millions of viewers over its 111-year history to date. With that, let me introduce Pauline Willis. So nice to see you, Pauline Willis. I'm glad that you uh, are joining this Cerebral Woman Art (laughs) podcast. And so you work for this organization. It's been around uh, 111 years, American Federation of Arts, and we're going to call it AFA for the rest Mm -hmm. of this talk. And I'm... I have the impression that there's a group of people that aren't familiar with the institution. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I want them to know about the institution, about you, Mm -hmm. and what you guys do. But I also want to know your passions in the art world. So I'm going to let you start off by telling us your role at the AFA and what is the AFA. All right. Well, I am so happy to be doing this because the AFA is an organization that I am so passionate about. I am director and CEO, a position that I have held for almost seven years, or actually a little over seven years now. And you worked your way up, right? And I did. And so I am one of those, uh, I'm not an artist and I'm not a curator. I'm one of those people that went to business school. So I've got my bachelor's degree And I went on to do a master's degree in public administration with a specialization in arts management. So I have worked with organizations more on the performing arts side. So the AFA was the first visual arts organization that I worked with. However, I have always been exposed to art and I've lived with art in my entire life. So I grew up in Georgetown, Guyana, South America. And in Guyana, art was always accessible. It wasn't that you had to have a certain amount of money or be of a certain class. Everybody lived with art. And art was a living, breathing part of our education. It was just a given. And it was felt that if you had art in your life, it made you a better person. It made communities better. So it is with that that my mom, my mom was a collector. And there are many, many 
very passionate Guyanese artists that were around us at any given time. But my mom was one of those collectors that collected so that the art matched the decor of the house. <laughs> so it was always where when she was collecting, it had to match kind of the couch. <laughs> and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I've gone into many homes and I've seen that people collect like that so that it's more of a design aesthetic rather than, oh, this is Kehinde Wiley or this is um, uh, Mark Bradford or something. It's just about, oh, this color, this color kind of matches my couch. So my mom was one of those, my mom was one of those collectors. So, but in any event, we always live with art. So it was with that that I believed, I mean, I believe that that's what brought me to the FA, that interest in the art. And when I was approached about taking on the directorship, it was a really easy transition from being on the finance side to being on the leadership side, because I was fascinated with the idea of bringing art to communities that might not have access to them. And that's the mission of the AFA. So the American Federation of Arts was founded in 1909 by an act of Congress. Because if you think about the United States in 1909, it was a brand new country. And we were now developing communities. There were not as many art museums as you see today. So our founding fathers at the time, I mean, people like Theodore Roosevelt, Elihu Ruth, felt that it was important that there was a greater appreciation and understanding of art so that communities would be made better and that education would be at the forefront of building these communities. And art was felt to be an integral part of that, which it is. So... At the time, there were museums such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Arts in Art Institute of Chicago, and not too many in sort of what was called at that time the hinterlands. So the AFA was really formed to bring the art from the major cities such as New York City, Chicago, not LA. There was no art scene in LA at that time. Um, Philadelphia, some of the older um, cities in America too, what was called the hinterlands. And when it was formed, I mean, AFA would do exhibition in libraries. So our very first exhibition was in Fort Worth, Texas, and it was a, um, the art of American artists. It was, a, it was like 16 American artists or something like that. And that was the exhibition that was done. And it was a traveling exhibition because it was felt that, and it still is today, that with traveling exhibitions, the cost is shared amongst the museums on the tour. So that's what makes it the kind of value-added proposition. So you have the content that comes from, say, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And Dan Weiss said it well in the recent video that we did for the AFA, where the American Federation of Arts and the Metropolitan Museum of Art shares this history where the Met would do these amazing exhibitions and the AFA would travel them to these other museums across America and these kind of regional communities so that they were able to experience these wonderful works of art from the major cities. So that was really the founding of the AFA. You know, so if I think about traveling exhibitions, works from the Metropolitan Museum traveling across the United States, and then I think of 
the cost involved, like the insurance, it must have changed so much because art is appreciated so much since then. Mm-hmm. So the cost has probably escal- escalated from... Absolutely. And that's actually one of the reasons why the AFA remains so important and relevant because the value of art has gone up, I mean, precipitously over the years, I mean, exponentially. And so it really is where these smaller regional museums don't have the budgets to buy these amazing work of art, works of art. So, so their collections are not as rich as some of the major cities. So they really rely on the AFA to bring these artworks to their communities. So they might have particular um, works in particular periods of time, but their collections are not as rich. So that's where they depend on the AFA to bring the collections and the exhibitions to these communities. And it's extremely rewarding to see the impact that we have on these communities. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I um, I remember when I first became director, uh, we did this exhibition called Treasures from the Kenwood House in London, and or Masterpieces, or whatever the title was. And it was an exhibition of these amazing works of art from this museum in London on Hampstead Heath. It was a, one of those majestic house museums. And one of the major works in the exhibition was a Rembrandt self-portrait, like an iconic Rembrandt self-portrait. So if you know about Rembrandt, he's done several self-portraits in his life, but this one was the last one and the most important. So many art historians and art students know of this work because of their um, art history classes and so forth. So they, but they've never become front and center with it. So when we traveled the exhibition, it went to a little known museum in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, the Arkansas Art Center. And I remember when we went to the opening, the curator in Little Rock, when she saw the work of art, she literally burst into tears. Oh, really? Because it was just like, wow, she's front and center with this artwork that would not have been possible without the AFA's work. And so that's one example of how rewarding it is to see these communities experience these works that we take for granted in the major cities, but that are not as accessible across, um, across these amazing communities. So that, that has been extremely rewarding to so see. So right now you have... Uh the exhibition for the Student Museum of Harlem, I would think that would have a great impact on the different communities that get an opportunity to view that work. I'm glad you raised that one because that that's one of the ones that's really near and dear to me. And it's a wonderful collaboration with Thelma Golden and her team. And the reason that that one in particular is so rewarding is because I've always wanted to travel to Studio Museum in Harlem's collection, and Thelma will tell you that. From the time I became director, I remember meeting Thelma, and I remember we had breakfast at the Whitney. At the time, the Whitney was where the Met Breuer is now. And we had breakfast together, and I talked with Thelma about the possibility of AFA traveling the Studio Museum in Harlem's collection. 
And she, you know, she listened and she said, you know, well, we'll see what happens. But basically it was like, keep dreaming, lady. (laughs) (laughs) So this opportunity to tour Studio Museum in Harlem's collection, celebrating the 50th year, 50 year anniversary of the Studio Museum in Harlem was only possible because of the expansion project that the Studio Museum of Harlem is doing currently. So as you know, David Adagé is designing a brand new space for the Studio Museum in Harlem so that more of their collection can be seen. And it's a major expansion project. So this means that the museum had to close in order to do that. So Thelma and I, um, I went back to Thelma and we talked about this being an opportune moment for these works of art to travel to communities across the United States to really, in many, many cases, introduce communities to artists of African descent. So it's almost as you have to think about it as if the Studio Museum in Harlem is being represented in these communities. And so Thelma and her team have been absolutely incredible uh, collaborators with, with the AFA team. And so we put together this exhibition of 80 plus works drawn from the Studio Museum in Harlem's collection. And really it's fascinating because you see artists at the, the beginning of their careers, um, artists like Candy Wiley, Mark Bradford, Kerry James Marshall, and so many others. Chris Ophelia. I Chris remember Ophelia. going to see yes, yes, I remember seeing it. Oh, yeah, Chris of, Ophelia. Yes. I mean, so Years many. Ago. Yes. Julie Moretu, um, uh, William T. Williams, Lyle Ashton Harris. I mean, works of art that really reads like a who's who of uh, artists from African descent in America, but really artists that have been, in some cases, left out of the art historical canyon in America. So the AFA took this project very seriously. So along with Thelma, we carefully selected the cities that this exhibition was going to tour to. Um, and thanks to the support of Alice Walton and her newly formed Art Bridges Foundation, we were able to go to places like Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, Seattle, Washington, um, South Car- um, Charleston, South Carolina, um, a small museum in San Francisco, and really exposing these communities to these amazing works of art by these artists of African descent. And What's going to happen, we feel, from this exhibition and other exhibitions that are happening, such as Soul of a Nation, is that it's going to really change history. It's going to be where the the art history in America will not leave out these important artists. And that's important because we even saw that with MoMA and the recent reopening where we saw that with this expansion, they're including, you know, other, other Americans, Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so, um, so, Black Refractions is some. It's a project that's really near and dear to the AFA. So, Pauline, tell us, what's your favorite exhibition that you've worked on? Well, in addition to uh, Black Refractions, an exhibition that for me was extraordinarily important for kind of the same reasons as Black Refractions was an exhibition that we did a few years ago called Women Artists in Paris, oh, yes, 1850 I have the book. to 1900. Yes, I, have I the sent book. you that book. Yes. 
really, really amazing story about these artists that came to Paris after the war from Scandinavian countries to Europe, from your, you know, countries across Europe to really perfect their skills. And I mean, when we think about these artists, we think about um, Berth Morisot that we know, Mary Cassatt, and names that we know. But the interesting, interesting thing about that exhibition that it eliminated is that there were so many others that were pioneering women. Their skills was, were equal and in some cases better than their male counterparts. But because of the position of women at that time, they were not allowed to practice their craft. They weren't allowed to they were practice. Not, they were not allowed. They were not allowed because um, women at that time had to know their place. So as you know, painting the nude was the main thing that you know perfects the skills of, of skills of artists. Women are, were not allowed to do that. So it really is this story about how these women at that time persevered and became amazing artists and were in many cases better and deserved more accolades than their male counterparts were, were never able to get it. So with this exhibition and the scholarship that was eliminated by um, this amazing curator, Laurence Madeline, it really brought to the forefront the importance of these um, women artists at that time. And so because of that exhibition, it changed the scholarship and art history to include these artists so that when we read about art history, we now include these important artists into the mix. So that's actually my absolute favorite exhibition that we did. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. And believe me, at the AFA, we have an amazing team of curators and registrars that work with me to make these exhibitions possible. And the, the, the loans were very difficult. When I say the loans, like we had to contact museums to get them to lend many of the artworks. And that was a heavy lift. And because they were coming from 60 or more different museums and private collections, it was extremely expensive. So we had to raise a lot of funds. That's another thing that AFA does. We raise funds from corporations, foundations, and individuals so that the exhibitions would be less expensive for the museums. And so we raised something like $300,000 to make it possible for this exhibition to happen. So I traveled to the Speed Museum in Louisville, Kentucky. It went to the Denver Art Museum, and it went to the Clark in Massachusetts. And it was, it was phenomenal. And it's an amazing catalog. And I will never forget that exhibition. <laughs> so you must meet some really interesting people. Oh, yes, I at do. Both museums and private collectors. I do. And that's the thing that I really enjoy about my job. Um, I, I am blessed to know many of the fabulous museum directors here in the U.S. and many in Europe and across the world because the work that we do really is about connections and collaborations and finding the right mix. It's about relationships. So I I'm tremend- I feel like the luckiest person to know many of the directors, the folks that have opened doors for me and for the AFA during my tenure and really led us to the place we are now, which is 
exponential growth in our exhibitions program and the expectation of even more collaborations and more exhibitions in the future. Share with us your experience working on the Lorna Simpson retrospective. Lorna Simpson. Ah, so share with us <laughs> that Amazing experience. Lorna Simpson exhibition. And actually, that was before I was director. We worked with the Whitney Museum of American Art years ago, not under my leadership, but I was in the organization at the time. And that's where I learned about Lorna and her work and how phenomenal Lorna is. In fact, I just saw Lorna because she received... Um, the, uh, the Getty Medal Award recently in LA. And we talked about that exhibition because it was one, was really like an instrumental exhibition for exposing several audiences to the work of Lorna Simpson. I believe it went to five venues or something and it was incredible. It was an incredible exhibition. And, you know, Lorna was, I mean, at the height of her career, she's doing so much. And it was really exposing audiences to who she was. And if I were to point to one exhibition that sort of put Lauren on the map um, here in the United States, it was that exhibition. So was most of the, the bulk of the art uh, that you had to gather, was it from the, the East Coast? It was. Um, that was a collection show. So many of the works came from the Whitney, from private collections, and from other museums that had already started to acquire the works of Lauren Simpson. Um, but now it's amazing that Lauren is a household name, and but she's just still so. I mean, I just I just love her. I just love her. I'm in awe of her. <laughs> I'm so excited about this conversation. So next question. <laughs> Me is, too. <laughs> what What are some of the exciting exhibitions that 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 you have? Okay, okay. Um, so one of the exhibitions that I'm extremely excited about is. A Romer, a Romer Bearden abstraction exhibition that we have upcoming. That's a wonderful collaboration with uh, the Newberger Museum of Art upstate. And everybody knows Romer Bearden. Like, a lot of people are familiar with his work um, because he does these amazing collages. But what most people don't know is that Romer Bearden is an amazing abstract artist. So this exhibition explores that abstract period where this was what he was practicing. And so I think it's going to really expose audiences to the depth and breadth of Romer Bearden, an artist that is extremely dear to my heart. Um, so what I, again, what I like about it as well is that it really is about a single artist's work and really talks about why, remember, I'm not going to reveal it, but why his works shift from abstraction to collage and how that all came about and how it develops. When putting this show together, are you gathering works from various sources? Yeah. So this uh, particular exhibition is a mix. Uh, it's a good question because... There's a differentiation between exhibitions that come from a single source. For example, in the case of Black Refractions, all of the works of art are coming from the Studio Museum in Harlem. So that we call that a single source exhibition. And a number of our exhibitions fall into that category where you know we're working with these museums for whatever reason, the museum is able to loan us um, a number of works of art 
for the exhibition. Then the second option is to have what we call a multi-lender exhibition or a thematic exhibition. So it's, it's where there is a particular curatorial narrative and the works of art are selected to prove that narrative. So in the case of women artists in Paris, that exhibition is a multi-lender exhibition because the curator, Lawrence Madeline, wanted to really talk about the important, the story about these women artists and all the stories about the artist. And then the artworks are chosen to prove that narrative. So in that case, there were about 60 distinctive lenders to the exhibition. So basically my staff, um, which I mean, again, I'm in awe of them because they're just incredible, are the ones that write why it is important for a museum or a private collector to lend to that exhibition. Fascinating. It is extremely amazing because you're writing to someone to tell them, okay, in the, in in the case, in your case, if you have a, a prized possession on your wall, this valuable asset. Hi, Phyllis. Would you please lend to this exhibition? Here's why it's important for you to loan to this Women Artists in Paris exhibition, because it's important for the world to know about these artists. So we we write a a, a basic sort of premise of why you should lend to this. Why it's important for the world to to see this piece of art. And, you know, in general, all the art that we have in our lives, we are the protectors of it, but the art will continue way beyond our existence, right? So most collect, most solid good collectors understand that. As they have to. So tell me, Pauline, what's the time frame for these projects? How many years do you need to plan ahead? So every single one of our exhibitions that you see now really the planning happened three years ago. Interesting. So you're always three years out. One of the reasons for that is museum schedules. The other reasons for that reasons for that are planning. So you have to, if a particular work of art is in great demand, you have to let the collector and the museum know that you want to borrow this work because you sort of have to think about what else is planned for the work. Exactly. And with this series, because it's women-focused, were most of the works available? I mean, were most of the works traveling? Now, you, now you're getting down to the real... <laughs> I, just, I love it, because <laughs> no. Exactly. I, did, I thought no. that was going to be no. your answer. The answer is no. So what happens is that we, we have our best list. So the curators work with... The registrars, the registrars are the folks that really are dealing with the logistics mm-hmm. of putting together an exhibition. So they're the ones that are caring for the artwork. So the curators will say, okay, here's our top, our A-list of works that we want. So we'll go out to those lenders and try to get that A-list secure. Then we'll find out that this work of art is committed to another exhibition, et cetera, et cetera. So your question is a good one because when we were talking about some of the cassettes, for example, some of those were promised another exhibition. So then we had to go to the next cassette and sort of negotiate what is the next one that would be fantastic to include in the exhibition. 
Luckily for the exhibition Women Artists in Paris, we were able to get some of the best works possible for the exhibition. So, but it, it's this kind of give and take. And, and part of the job that I really love is negotiating the loans, like talking to directors about why it's important for them to loan this work and why it's important for the work to be included in the catalog. So again, that's what that's the passion that I have for what I do, because it's like trying, it's like chasing down the, the loan. <laughs> I, how could you not love that? So, so with the Ramir mm-hmm. Bearden. So the some of the works in the Ramir Bearden are coming from the Seymour Galleries. I mean, they've been phenomenal uh, lenders, and they've agreed to loan. Some of the works are coming from the Newberger Museum of Art in Purchase, New York, and we're working with. Tracy Fitzpatrick, who's the curator of this exhibition, wonderful colleague and friend. And we're working with several independent lenders who really understand the importance of exposing this aspect of Rumer Bearden's work to a greater audience. And that's the importance of why. And that makes them passionate about lending because they want to educate audiences about this aspect of his work that maybe hasn't been explored as fully as it should have been in prior exhibitions. When and how do you work with international museums? I have really extended my reach beyond the amazing museums here in the U.S. to museums in Europe um, museums such as the Louvre, um, um, Musée des Beaux Arts Décoratifs in Montreal, so so many others. Um, London, London, um, Austria, the Leopold. I, you know, people talk about um, the fact that interest in art comes from seeing art that represents your own background, but. I'd like to challenge audiences and people listening to this to open their minds to think about appreciating art that is from various cultural, you know, cultural standpoints because that's what I do. And it's, it really, really extends your reach and understanding of, of, of various um, cultures. Um, so the other international collaboration that I'm extremely proud of that the AFA has done, again, with, with our amazing team, is a collaboration with Chinese museums. So in 2014 and again in 2016, the AFA brought together several museum partners from American museums to Chinese museums to share best practices because the idea was that we wanted to break down barriers exactly. and really understand how to work with each other to mm-hmm. share works of art. Because there, I mean, in China, there's there are so many amazing, amazing works of art that American audiences could appreciate and would appreciate, and vice versa. There's so many collections from American institutions that Chinese audiences would really just really appreciate and learn about each other's culture. And I learned to appreciate how they put together exhibitions and how they put together catalogs and their timelines and 
what was important to, to the Chinese versus how we worked in the United States. And were there glaring differences? There are. Really? I could tell you that in Chinese museums and in their process, things happen extremely quickly. Is, is any of it audience-driven? A lot of it is audience-driven. driven, And you'd be surprised that Chinese audiences are so interested in old masters and they're so interested in American art, but it is that they're interested in the big names. They want to know what's happening at the Met, what's happening at the Arts Institute in, in Chicago. So another um, difference, of course, there are so many protocol differences and kind of respecting the leadership and the person who's the head of the organization has to be the one at the, the head. And, you know, there were several things that we, and it was important to me in visiting Chinese museums to really conform to how they like to do things. You have no choice. I, I thought it was important. It's so interesting to hear about your experiences in China and, and promising to know that uh, they are generous and interested in working with the art institutions here in the United States. Pauline, I want to change the subject just a bit. I'm really curious to hear about what you see as trends in the museum world here in the U.S. So recently, one of the trends that I've seen is that museums uh, such as SFMOMA and others have deaccessioned works by white artists to acquire works by artists of color. And female artists? And female artists. And I feel like there shouldn't be a choice. What about both? What about if we have our artists of color alongside artists white artists and other artists, such as what has just happened at MoMA. Yeah, the new MoMA. Yes. The new MoMA. Picasso Again. And, and Faith Ring yeah. rest at the, in the same room. Yeah. So I'd like to see us Again, be careful and, and, of course, respect what is important in terms of the leadership in art museums and art spaces, but at the same time, respect each other and really look at what we could be passionate about in art. I mean, I love Pollock. I love Rembrandt. I love Mark Bradford. And I love Julie Moretu. And that's okay. <laughs> so... It can be that all of us can appreciate art of everyone else, and art can move us. If we're Chinese-American, we're Muslim-Americans, we're white Americans, black Americans, and others, there's, there's, there shouldn't be a choice. We can appreciate art from all backgrounds. Thank you so much. Thank you. For joining me. This is a pleasure. And, uh, and really enjoy your that. experiences. It's uh, enlightening and uplifting. And the AFA is fortunate to have you. Oh. To have that vision. Well, thank and you. And to have that thank you. goal. <laughs> Thanks again. It's thank been amazing you. to be part of this. Thank 